You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, let's go to 1 John together. 1 John chapter 5 this morning. 1 John chapter 5. And just hold your place there for a second. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There are some Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. And you can take one now or on your way out today. Hold your place in 1 John for just a moment. I want to do a uh, quick tutorial of our website for you, showing you one thing in particular. Our website, as you know, is faithrs.org. It looks like this. In the upper left-hand corner is a drop-down menu. And you will now find our new media page. So we have an ever-growing, uh, ever-expanding media library. None of these things, by the way, are designed to take the place of what you're doing right now, gathering in person for corporate worship on Sunday mornings. But they are designed to uh, be other tools for you throughout the week. The first thing you'll see is our YouTube channel, which will take you to uh, videos of all of our recent sermons that we, uh, we've created playlists for these. So if you're traveling a week, you miss a week, or you just want to share a, a message with a friend, maybe, or a neighbor, you can take them to our YouTube channel. We also now have three podcasts. The first one is the Faith Community Church podcast, which is the message audio from each Sunday morning. So if you prefer to just put your headphones in while you're taking a walk on the beach or you like something to listen to for your commute time on the way to work, there's that podcast. The Good Faith podcast is a monthly podcast where uh, I interview a wide range of leaders. This month, our guest on that show is our very own Lindsay Peake. And she talks about the recent expansion of Faith Preschool. So that's a monthly leadership podcast. And then our newest one is called Midgard. This is a midweek podcast every week. New episodes are available every Wednesday morning. Um, this is a, think of this as a class that we're bringing to you. If you've ever thought to yourself, man, I wish we had an every Wednesday class where I could grow deeper in my faith, where I could learn more about what I believe and why I believe it. But then with your very next breath in your mind, you're thinking, yeah, but you know what? I'm so busy. I probably couldn't commit to an every Wednesday class. Well, now we're bringing the content to you. That's what the Midgard podcast is. But let me say that there are three types of people who really should not listen to the Midgard podcast. Uh, the first type is the person who's easily offended. If you're easily offended, this is not for you. The second type is the person who prefers fluffy thinking, sort of a flabby mind. If that's you, not a podcast for you. And then the third one is the person who's looking for a quick fix. If you're just looking for a silver bullet quick fix, not the podcast for you. This is a long game podcast that seeks to develop deep soil disciples who know how to think critically about our culture. So if that's the type of thing you're interested in, you can subscribe to that podcast. But just be aware that we have all of these things on our media page, again, not to replace what we're doing right now, but to help you throughout the week. All right, enough on that, to the text. 1 John chapter 5, if you are willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for his people, so listen carefully to these words. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Today we are finishing up our study of 1 John. So next Sunday we'll transition to 2 John and then 3 John, which are much shorter letters. If you've never looked at 2 and 3 John, they're just one page each. So they're sort of like God's Twitter account, except that unlike most people on Twitter, God's not a jerk. So we'll look at those beginning next week. But we first, how did that play out, by the way? Have you ever wondered, how did it play out that like Instagram is this space where everything is beautiful and wonderful and everybody's happy, and Twitter, everything is just horrible and terrible? How did, how did that happen? That's a sermon for another day. Uh, so next week, we'll look at 2 John and then 3 John. But first, we need to finish up 1 John. Now, there's a lot going on in this final chapter of the letter in chapter 5. I think it would be helpful for us to start with these three theological points that John brings out at the beginning of the chapter. Three things that he teaches us about God and God's people. The first thing is that God creates Christians. So all of this by way of introduction showing you where we're going to be going. But hang, hang with me here. God creates Christians. Now these three theological points at the beginning of the chapter are easy to spot because each one has the word everyone in it. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So in other words, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, it is because God has given you the gift of spiritual life. And that's not just true for you, it's true for everyone who's a believer. It's because God in His sovereign grace has brought you to life. The result of God's sovereign grace is personal faith, belief, in Jesus. So God creates Christians. That's the first theological point. Here's the second one. To love the Father is to love his family. Again, look at the everyone statement. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So if God creates Christians, God creates this family. He makes us brothers and sisters. He makes us his Family. Therefore, to love the Father is to love the people that God himself has created. If you come to me and say, Dylan, you know, I love you, but I really hate your son. I love you, but I just cannot stand your son. Well, you know what? If you say that to me, you're taking issue with me because I love my son. See, this is how it works in the family of God. You can't say, I really hate that brother or sister over there. I just really can't stand that person. I cannot possibly act in, an un, in a loving way toward that person. I just can't do it. You're actually taking issue with God because God loves that person. We know he loves that person because he's created them. He's made them a believer. He's given them the gift of spiritual life. So to love the Father is also to love the family. And then here's the third theological point. God's people, this family... God's people are more powerful than the world. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What a wonderful promise that we, the people of God, are more powerful than the world. Now remember, by world, John means that web of influencers and influences, people and products, that web that seeks to lure us away from the God who is light and love. 
But we, the people of God, are more powerful than the world. We are overcomers. And the victory, the way we move toward this place of victory, is by keeping the faith. Our faith, believing and continuing to believe in Jesus Christ. So, put all three of these points together. Here's the summary. God is our Father. We are a family of love. And we will triumph over the world by continuing to trust in Jesus. What a wonderful promise. But, of course, here's the problem. The problem is that we continue to struggle with sin. John has talked about that so many times in this letter, hasn't he? We continue to struggle with sin. We struggle against the world. And certain days, if we're honest, the world wins. The world wins. So what do we do when a brother or sister in Christ has become entangled by the world? What do we do? Well, because we are a family of love, we go after them. We go after them. And that's what John is going to talk about in the end of this chapter. What does it involve going after that brother or sister in Christ who has fallen, who is struggling with sin, who has become entangled, seduced by the world? What does it mean to go after them? John will give us four steps to take. Think of the first two as preparatory. The second two, that's where the rubber meets the road. So here we go. The first thing we must do is see. See your brother or your sister. Skipping down all the way to verse 16, towards the end of the chapter now. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin. Now before we even talk about the sin part, first things first, we've got to see each other. We must understand that the Christian life is life together. If you don't get that, then none of the other things John says in this chapter will make any sense to you. The Christian life is life together. We need each other. A spiritual responsibility will be laid upon every believer in this passage. Not just on the pastor or the elders. No, no. A spiritual responsibility will be laid on every believer. We are accountable to one another. We care for each other. We need each other. The Christian life is life together. But again, if we're honest, there are so many days and weeks that go by, we don't see each other. We have become self-absorbed, consumed by our own situations. And here, I think, is why. We have become self-absorbed because we are omni-occupied. Crazy busy. See, if you give me a box, if it's not too terribly heavy, I can carry it. If you give me two boxes, I can pile them up and I can carry them. But if you just keep on piling those boxes, sooner or later, not only is my strength going to threaten to give out, but all of a sudden I can't see a thing. Those boxes are piled so high in front of my face, all I can see is the boxes. So many of us 
have become so busy that we have no other choice but to be self-absorbed. Because we have said for far too long, sure, I'll take that box. I'll take those extra hours, those projects at work because I need the income. Sure, we'll take that hobby, that activity, pile it on top, and while we're at it, we'll take one more. And now we're walking around with all these boxes and all we can see is our own situation, our own life, our own stuff. We have no choice but to be self-absorbed. But understand, when you're carrying around all those boxes like that, not only can you not see your brother or sister in need, but they can't see you. They can't see you. See, from your vantage point, you're blind. You're blind because of your busyness. From their vantage point, you're buried. They can't get to you to help you. So it's not just that you can't see and help your brother or sister who needs you. They can't get to you to help you. I believe some of us are in this room today simply because God wants us to hear this very message. You need to put down some of the boxes. You will never be able to help your brothers and sisters in Christ. They will never be able to get to you. You will always be self-absorbed until you put down some of the boxes. Now, only you, through prayer and studying God's work, can decide what those boxes are. So I'm going to leave that one to you now. But some of the boxes got to go. It's the only way you'll be able to see your brother or sister. And they'll be able to see you. That's the first step. Second, we need to identify the sin. Camping out here in verse 16 still. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. So we see our brother or sister, and then we have the responsibility. Again, this spiritual responsibility is placed on all of us, on every believer. We have the responsibility to do something when a brother or sister is struggling with sin. But we must make sure that it is indeed a sin. Now, there are two errors to avoid here. The first error is turning liberty into law. Turning liberty into law. Placing prohibitions where God himself has not placed them. Or taking our preferences and treating them as if they are God's laws. There's a whole category of issues and questions that fall under this heading of Christian liberty. In other words, these are areas where the Bible does not give us a clear command. All sorts of questions. Should a Christian wear a t-shirt or a tie to worship? Believe it or not, I once had a lady who sat down to meet with me and she offered to buy me a whole new wardrobe. I'm not lying. She was convinced that to be a, an effective pastor and a faithful Christian, I had to have buttons and lots of starch. Now look, we don't, we don't have a command in the Bible on that one. That's an issue of liberty, not law. Which school should you put your children in? This school over here, that one over there. We don't have a clear command on that one. What about worship style? Should we sing hymns or praise songs or both? Should a Christian go to a brewery? Should a church have its own brewery? (laughs) 
what, what do you think's in phase two? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Here's the point. Look, we will all have our opinions on these things. But if there's an issue that we're talking about where we don't have a clear command in God's word, it's a matter of liberty, not of law. And therefore, your brother or sister who has a different view, not the one you hold, it does not mean that he or she is living in sin. It's a matter of liberty. That's the first error to avoid, turning liberty into law. Now here's the second one, turning law into liberty. Turning law into liberty. This is taking a very clear command in God's word and treating it as a suggestion. And this sort of downplaying, it always leads to our detriment and to the detriment of others. Remember that because God is both light and love, when he says no, it is always because there's a greater yes. Always. So as we see our brothers and sisters, and as we seek to identify sin, be careful about both of these errors. Don't turn liberty into law, and don't turn law into liberty. Now notice one other thing in verse 16 here that's curious. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, now hang on, I thought all sin leads to death. I mean, isn't that what Paul says, Romans 6.23, a verse that many of us have memorized, the wages of sin is death? What is John talking about here? I think here in verse 16, he's not so much differentiating types of sin, but types of sinners. The sin that leads to death is the sin committed by an unbeliever. Someone whose sin has not been covered by the blood of Jesus. The sin that does not lead to death is the sin committed by the believer. The one who has been covered by the blood of Jesus. So you see, this is, this is giving us hope. It's giving you hope that if you are that believer who has become entangled... If you are that believer who really, really this morning is struggling with sin, know that God still loves you. Know that your sin will not lead to death. It will not lead to eternal separation from his, his love. No, because Jesus died for you. Your sin will not lead to death. Your sin, however, is destructive. It is destructive. It's hurting you. It's hurting other relationships in your life. And so it's time to turn back to God. And that brings us to the third step that John gives us here. We see our brother or sister, we identify the sin, and then third, pray for the sinner. Now let's back up to verse 13 because I want you to see the context leading up to this verse 16 that we've been camping out in. Here's the context. Verse 13 is that purpose statement that we've looked at numerous times already. Let's look at it once more. John says, I write these things to you. In other words, I've given you this letter, and here's why. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John has given us this letter so that we, believers, can rest assured, so that we can know that we do indeed belong to God. 
And then in verse 14, he reminds us of one of the great privileges of belonging to God. And that great privilege is God listens to us. He listens to us. This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, meaning he answers. When we pray in accordance with God's will, he gives us that for which we ask. And when our prayers are not in accordance with God's will, he gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. Oh, he's good. He's good. So we have this confidence that we can go to God our Father in prayer. And now, in verse 16, John says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. He shall ask, and God will give him, the fallen brother that is, life. So what's the first action step we take? We see our brother or sister. We've identified that this brother or this sister is living in sin. No doubt about it, we have clear commandments in God's word. Now what do we do? We don't point the finger at them. We don't turn a blind eye. We don't gossip. We don't gossip. We don't gossip. We pray. That's the first step we take. We pray. We go to the sovereign God and we ask him to intervene and to rescue this brother or sister who is struggling with the full belief and confidence that God will do it. This is a prayer in accordance with his will. We know it because God himself has given it to us right here. This is a prayer request that comes from God himself to us. Here's what you pray for. You pray for your brothers and sisters who are struggling. Pray for them. We spend so much time praying for ourselves, don't we? It's not a bad thing to pray for yourself. But do we pray for others in this way? This is an oft-overlooked prayer request. So we pray, and then, after taking this person to God, we then have the responsibility of saying something to the person. And here's the way it plays out. We need to point to the protector. This is the final step John tells us to take. Look at verse 18 here. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, will not live in this pattern of sin. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. He who is born of God, this is a reference to Jesus. In the middle of the chapter, there's a lengthy description of Jesus and what he's come to do. We've seen this again and again in the letter. The Son of God, the one born of God, who is the protector of the sinner, is Jesus. Now, in what way does Jesus protect this sinner who's entangled in the world's web? Well, of course, it's because Jesus has already taken the punishment for that sin. So what that sinner needs to be reminded of is the fact that Jesus is his or her protector. And that means it's safe to come home. It's safe. You can turn away from that sin that has entangled you. Jesus has taken the punishment for it. 
And that means that the Father is standing there, arms wide open, ready for you to return. It's safe to go back to the Father. So now, fellow Christian, that's your responsibility. You've seen your brother or sister. You've identified the sin. You've prayed for that brother or sister. You're still praying. And now, you go to that person and you remind him or her of Jesus the protector. You remind him or her it is safe to come home. That means you've got to have a tough conversation though, right? It means you have to go to someone who is struggling. You have to go to someone and point out their sin. And that's not an easy thing to do. We need courage. We need coaching. Thankfully, we have some profound help in the book of Proverbs. I want to pivot to Proverbs here in closing because Proverbs, perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, teaches us about the power of our words. Proverbs teaches us that death and life are in the power of the words. Here's one of my favorite verses from the book. Rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Life and death in the power of the tongue, in the power of our words. So when it comes time to go to your brother or sister and have that conversation, Proverbs shows us how to do it. In the book of Proverbs, there are five characteristics of helpful or healing words. I'm going to give them to you in closing. The first characteristic of healing words is that they are truthful. They are truthful. Truth is liberating. Truth will set us free. So you must go to your brother or sister and speak truth. Candor is a good thing. But it's not the only thing. Now, here's where many of us go wrong. Candor's a good thing, but it's not the only thing. It's interesting that in Proverbs, of the five characteristics of healthy words, only the first one has to do with what we say. Truth. We speak truth. The other four have to do with how we say it. Any other husbands in the room ever get in trouble, not because of what you say, but how you say it? Man, I get all the time in my house. All the time. So words have to be truthful, but then second... They're thoughtful. They're thoughtful. Think and think again before you speak to your brother or your sister. Truth is liberating. Truth will set you free. That means truth is beautiful. But oftentimes we deliver the truth in such a way that it makes it seem ugly. So say to yourself, this truth is beautiful. What is the most beautiful way I could deliver it? Speak that truth with gentleness and love and patience. Patience. Third, healing words are few. Consistently in the book of Proverbs, we learn that fewer words are better. Fewer words are better. Why? Well, because the more you speak, the more opportunities for a misstep. The more you speak, the less you're listening to the other person. The more you speak, the less they're going to listen to you. Helpful healing words are few. Fourth, they are calm. They're calm. If your brother or sister who is living in sin has done something that has made you angry, 
you do need to speak, but not yet to them. You speak first to God. Take your emotions to God in prayer. Process them there in His presence. Let Him calm you and your words, and then you're ready to go to your brother or sister. Helpful healing words are calm. And then finally, they are timely. They are timely. See, we must have not only the right words and the right way of saying them, but the right time of delivering them. Maybe you don't yet have enough relational equity with that person to be the one who brings this message to them. You need to spend a little more time building the relationship. Maybe you're in public and this sort of thing needs to be handled in private. It's not the right time. See, we need all five of these in place. It's faithful to what Scripture teaches and it gives us the best opportunity of being heard, of getting through to that brother or sister who desperately needs help. I want to wrap up with this. Staying in the Old Testament for another few minutes here. Probably the most famous or infamous example of a believer struggling, falling to sin is the story of King David. 2 Samuel 11 and 12, go read it later. King David, great man, man after God's own heart, he falls. He falls hard. He has a good friend named Uriah. Uriah is his warrior, his friend. Uriah is away at war fighting David's battles. While he's away, David covets Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, commits adultery with her. And then, get this, he orchestrates the murder of Uriah to get him out of the way. Now, David thinks he's gotten away with all of it. He thinks life's just going to Keep moving forward. But God knows. And God raises up a man. Anybody remember his name? Anybody? Nathan. Nathan. He raises up a man named Nathan. And Nathan goes to David. And he brings God's word to David. Confronts the sin. And that's the beginning of David's repentance. That man, Nathan, coming and speaking truth in the right time and the right way, just as God had called him to do. That's the beginning of King David's repentance. We all need Nathans. Praise God for the Nathans in my life. Do you have some Nathans? Do you listen to them when they come to you? Are you a Nathan to someone else? You need to be a Nathan and you need to have Nathans. Even the Nathans need Nathans. Otherwise, they wouldn't be Nathans. <laughs> Listen to me. Your heart, it can deceive you. Your heart can hide the truth. You can be living in sin destroying your life and others, and you don't even know it. And that's why you need others. It's why we need each other. The Christian life is life together.
Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you first and foremost for creating us, your people, for giving us the gift of spiritual life and the gift of faith, for drawing us into your family. Help us now to live with this type of brave, courageous love that is willing to go after the brother or sister who has fallen. Not in any sort of a self-righteous or superior way, but with truth and great thoughtfulness, gentleness and patience, pointing that fallen brother or sister to their protector, to you, Lord Jesus. You have taken the penalty for our sin. And that means that it's safe, it's safe to come home. There the father stands, arms wide open. The prodigal can come back and he can be celebrated. Not just forgiven, celebrated. Oh, this is the good news of the gospel. That we cannot out your grace, oh God. Some of us are struggling with sin ourselves this morning. Many of us, I suspect. Take that beautiful truth of the gospel and work it deep down in our hearts. Deep down. In Jesus' name.